I remember in college, the most feared test was the comprehensive test. You remember those? Uh, comprehensive tests seemed um, impossible to me, if not unfair. Uh, so I, my strategy was to study what I hoped would be on the test and uh, hold my breath on test day to see if I'd chosen the right things to study. Um, well, we now come to the next test of authentic faith in the book of James. If you've been here throughout the study of this book, um, you know that this book is a collection of tests of faith, right? Um, it's a comprehensive test of sorts. We've made it through four of the five chapters and have survived, not without some bruises, but we've survived. And now we can see the end. The end is in sight of James. Um, it's been a wonderful study. If James' tests of faith are comprehensive, today we encounter a subject that you may have hoped the professor would leave off the exam. <laughs> uh, and you may know what this subject matter is based on what our service has been like so far. Uh, but I'm certain that you really didn't think that you could get through all the tests of faith without being questioned about finances and money, right? Well, James is not going to disappoint us. He's going to uh, dive into this uncomfortable uh, subject matter, but I'm hoping that through the faithfulness of God and the Holy Spirit in us today through this word that we will come out the other side encouraged. So read with me if you would. I'll read, you listen as I read James chapter 5 verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying against you. And the cries of the harvesters are reaching the ears of the Lord of the hosts. Have you lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence? You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So there we go. We have uh, a lot to cover here today. This is, um, I think, going to be penetrating for most of us, um, practical for all of us. But nothing more clearly reveals the condition of a person's soul than their view of money, their view of material possessions. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 6. We've already heard it once this morning. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. In our passage today in James, um, he, he is again piggybacking on the teachings of his older brother, Jesus Christ. These verses are some of the most severe in all of Scripture, at least in this book. Um, and he condemns those who profess to worship God who really are actually worshiping money. So it must be stated right up front, just so there's no misunderstanding, <clears throat> that the Bible does not condemn money. The Bible does not condemn wealth. The Bible does not con condemn material possessions. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18, that God is the one who gives us the ability to create wealth. 
It says in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22, that God's blessing results in wealth. And so it is not opposed to God's standard or principle to be wealthy or to have money or material possessions. That, you need to hear that right up front because if I don't say that up front, you may wonder that and keep wondering that and be distracted the entire sermon. All right, so hear me right up front. The problem isn't with money and wealth. The problem is with the misuse of it. All right? I'm going to try to unfold all that for you here this morning. James is calling the unrighteous rich to mourn and weep because of the impending judgment on them who refuse to turn from their selfish, godless lifestyles. He's not attacking money. He's not attacking wealth, possession. He's not even attacking rich people. And we know this because some of the greatest saints in Scripture were wealthy, right? Abraham, Job, David, Josiah, Joseph of Arimathea, Lydia, all filthy rich. James is addressing those who are confident in their profession of faith, even though there are multiple red flags in their lives. He knows, and by now you should know, that outward profession of faith isn't a guarantee of authentic faith. You can say whatever you want. Where is the proof? It's in the eating of the pudding, right? It's, it's in our actions. Faith without works is dead. Professing Christians who are wealthy need to pay close attention here to closely examine how they use their wealth. And may I remind you, in case you're sitting here thinking, oh, phew, this isn't a sermon towards me, it's for the wealthy. Um, let me remind you how wealthy we all are by the world's standards. <clears throat> if you're living in America, which you are, if you are employed, which most of you are, then you represent the top 2% in all the, wealth, the world's wealth. You are in the top 2%. So, I would venture to say that 99% of the people in this room are in view here in this text. All right? We are the richest people on the planet who have ever lived in America. We have abundance in this country by God's blessing. And so, these words from James are particularly poignant. And the more we have, the easier it is to be possessed by our possessions and have our vision blurred to what God would have us see. Jesus said in Mark 4, riches and wealth do more than just blur our vision. Jesus said, but the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter. And what do they do? They choke the word. They choke the word out of us. And we are unfruitful. So, um, what I want to do today is to ask you to examine your financial presuppositions and your habits, and then carefully consider some biblical alternatives to those things. Okay? That's what I'm after today. To examine your financial presuppositions and habits, and then carefully consider some biblical alternatives to those things. So, let's move forward. The first point in your outline, and in this text, is this, the judgment of misused wealth, the judgment of misused wealth. Bertha Adams <clears throat> died alone in her home in 1976. She was 71 years old. Um, the coroner's report said that she died of malnutrition even though she lived in a wealthy area of, of uh, Florida. She weighed 50 pounds when she died. 
Um, during her last years, she would beg for food and clothing from her neighbors. Uh, but when they went into her home to retrieve her dead body after she died, they discovered her house was a pig pen and found two keys to two different safety deposit boxes. In those boxes, they found over 700 stock certificates of AT&T, plus hundreds of other valuable certificates, bonds, securities, as well as over 800,000 in cash. And she starved to death. Why? Because she was a hoarder. She, she was so concerned about gaining and getting more, protecting what she had, she starved to death. She had more than enough money to live more comfortably than all of her neighbors. And yet she would borrow and beg from them. Hoarding and all of its companions is one of the most widespread sins of our time. God blesses believers with material goods to be used to alleviate suffering, to extend his kingdom, to bring him glory. And when professing Christians hoard God's blessings or use them for extravagant personal comforts, it's time for direct confrontation. And that's what we're hearing from James. To be sure, Christians are to provide for their families and biblical saving isn't hoarding. Let me prove what I've just said from 2 Corinthians 12 and 1 Timothy 5. 2 Corinthians 12 says, children are not to be obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Parents, you should be saving to give something to your children. 1 Timothy 5, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So providing for your family and saving biblically is not a sin. In fact, it's commanded. All right. James is describing something here that is beyond that. And he, you can see what he's doing the way he, in the three things that he describes. Riches, you see there, garments, precious metals. So the hoardings James is addressing is hoarding of these elements. Then he describes the judgment attached to each of those things. Rotting riches, you notice, moth-eaten garments, and corroded precious metals. He, he uses figurative language there to communicate um, how wrong this is. He, he communicates there through figurative language that the hoarded blessings of God, he says, will eat your flesh like fire. I think James writes in a way that allows us to interpret the judgment that he speaks of both in temporal terms and in eternal terms, future terms. All right, so misuse riches erode the character in the same way that fire eats the flesh. There are biblical illustrations of this, right? We've seen this quite often. Lot, for example, Achan, Solomon, Laban. What did finances do to their lives? It ruined them eroded character. That is a present temporal judgment. Wealth can be a poison that, that eats at your soul, eats at your life. James also mentions a future judgment um, when he speaks of the day of slaughter in verse 5. Do you notice that? Those who misuse money suffer now as their wealth corrodes and complicates their lives and also will suffer on judgment day is some way to summarize what James has said concerning judgment. Wealth can affect you like it did Abraham or Lot. You see how wealth affected those guys differently? Abraham used his financial and wealth blessing from God to uh, 
bless people around him to extend the kingdom of God. Lot, on the other hand, was absolutely ruined by his wealth. He hoarded it, wanted more, moved to places that was more likely to get him richer. And it cost him his physical life. The psalmist says this in Psalm 62.10, If riches increase, set not your heart on them. When I was studying for this sermon today, uh, I read Warren Wiersbe's commentary on the matter, and he said, it's good to have riches in your hand provided they do not get to your heart. And I want you to see the difference between those two things today. James tells us that there's two reasons primarily that judgment will come to those who are wealthy. Not just wealthy, but sinfully wealthy. Okay? There's two different things there. I'm hoping you're, you're catching my communication here. Riches isn't wrong. Misuse of riches is wrong. Does that make sense? All right. So the first reason for judgment, according to James, is ill-gotten gain. You see this in verse 4 and verse 6. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud. These, these employers didn't pay their employees what they should have. They were holding back wages. And then in verse 6, you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. What does that mean? They have withheld wages in such a way that these poor people couldn't even survive. They, and, they, and they killed them, literally murdered them by not paying them to, enough money to buy food. And James highlights the problem here by beginning the sentence in verse 4 by saying, Behold, pay attention. Can you believe this? Is what behold means. He could hardly believe his ears when he heard the report of what was happening to these people. He wrote that unpaid wages were crying out against their rich employers. And not only that, but the, the workers themselves, their cries had reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. The same Lord of hosts we heard read from Malachi chapter 3. This Lord of hosts is the one who is the commander of the Lord's armies. You don't want your name coming before the commander of the Lord's armies in com by way of complaint. He will bring vengeance on those who do. Not all of us are employers in this room. Some of us are, but not all of us. But all of us do business in Yakima. So let me ask some questions that might bridge uh, from where we are to where Malachi wrote. All right? Not all of us are employers, but we each do business in Yakima. Do we abusively haggle over the price of a used car? Do we haggle over the wages of a repairman or a mechanic? Are we miserly in our tips to servers? Have we built up excess from our unwillingness to pay a fair price for goods and services in this town? That's what James would be asking us. It is wrong to store up wealth, James would say, if you owe money to somebody. That could be someone who did some work for you, a bank who loaned you some money, a credit card you borrowed from, a hospital that treated you. That's where these verses would be hitting us today in our day. So there's judgment is coming because, James says, of ill-gotten gain. And then he says in verse 5, judgment's coming because of selfishness. You see verse 5? You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. 
So he uses three words to describe this selfish attitude and lifestyle that's coming under judgment. He uses the word luxury, self-indulgent, and fattened. Now this is, I think, at the center of James's argument and his condemnation. So the question we must ask is, is luxury wrong? One could argue that luxury isn't sinful as long as it's not obtained at the expense of others. And I think that's a good argument. James might even listen to that argument. But the word luxury implies unnecessary, right? This can be a fine line in our society. This subject, I think, requires careful thought and much wisdom before we promote some austere lifestyle so that we can call ourselves holy. Um, I think that you could make an argument. I've heard the argument made myself that no one should be living in a house with more than one bedroom for every two people who live in that house. And so the argument goes, if you're living in a house as a couple and you have a three-bedroom home, you're in sin. Um, anything more than your basic sustenance, they say, is luxury. So if you, can, if you follow that argument to its conclusion, we should all live in tents, right? Is that appropriate? Well, if you're going to expect me to give you some boundaries on luxury, you're going to be disappointed. I'm going to allow you to wrestle with that. Um, besides that, make it too easy for you legalists. So let's move on to the next word. Self-indulgent. Self-indulgent. And, and by the time we get through here, you'll, you'll have a clear picture, I'm hoping, of all of this. So I'm not just going to leave you hanging. Okay. Self-indulgent. The Greek word that, that James used refers to a wanton pursuit of pleasure. When Paul used the same word in his letter to Timothy, he was referring to people who lived without any self-denial that often resulted in vices in their attempts to satisfy insatiable desires. That's what he was talking about when he used the word self-indulgent. When you don't deny yourself any impulse, your life careens out of control in many areas. And Paul told Timothy that these kind of folks were zombies. You didn't think the Bible spoke of zombies, did you? It speaks of zombies. Listen to this. 1 Timothy 5, 6. But she who is self-indulgent is dead while she lives. If you spend all your money on thinking about yourself and doing things for yourself, you are a spiritual zombie. Dead while you live. That's pretty powerful. Self-indulgent people move through life without noticing the needs of those around them and definitely have no interest in giving to the cause of Christ. That would diminish their self-indulgence. They live a life of reckless abandon, similar to the prodigal son. The third descriptive word used there in verse 5 is fattened. This is a pretty descriptive word. Um, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, Solomon recorded his fattening, his self-indulgence, his luxury. When you have time, you might want to read through that as it applies to today's sermon. But there he just lists all the things he did to pursue his own pleasure, his own self-indulgence. He had everything he wanted anytime he wanted, and he kept piling it on. By verse 11, though, in, in that same chapter, he concludes that these things are futile, vanity. They do not fulfill. But if you want an example of what it means to live that self-indulgent, luxurious, fattened life, read that verse. 
or read some biographies of modern-day millionaires. James says that all of this leads to God's judgment, which he describes as the day of slaughter. Now, I have uh, technically covered the details of these texts, of these words, these, these passages here that are in front of us, these six, seven, these six verses. But there's more here for the Christian, and I think that it's important that I dig into these things that are just beneath the surface for your benefit. And this is found in, under my point number two, the alternative of well-used wealth. The alternative of well-used wealth. Look at the last sentence of verse three. <clears throat> you have laid up treasure in the last days. Now, what's beneath the surface there? This is what's beneath the surface. Instead of strategically investing in the cause of Christ, you have laid up treasure in the last days instead of strategically investing in the cause of Christ. Now look at the last sentence, verse 5. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter instead of reaching out to help those who are plummeting headlong towards that day. I think James is talking about the fact that these self-indulgent ones are fattening up their lives while the day of judgment looms. While millions stumble, stumble blindly towards judgment day, these selfish hoarders pursue extravagant pleasures without a thought of those perishing around them. This is why James is so animated. James rebukes those hoarding rich for misusing the wealth in the last days when it should be obvious that there are strategic kingdom investments to be made. Someone who claims to know Christ but has little or no regard for kingdom priorities is the reason James is so upset. And you call yourselves Christians, James said. He would say, if he could, there are unsent missionaries because of lack of financial support. There are unhired pastors because of lack of financial local church support. There are unmet needs in every single city in this country because of luxurious, self-indulgent fatness by people who call themselves Christians. This is a shot between the eyes for the American church. James could have used the illustration of someone using their money to repaint the deck of a sinking yacht or replacing the blinds on the house that's on fire. The question he wants us to ask is, are we misusing our money on things that don't last or have no eternal value? James isn't talking about ignoring the needs of your family so that you can give a couple bucks to the church. He's talking about blatant waste of money that's all too common today that goes far beyond any definition of need. James agrees with the Apostle Paul in Romans 13, 11, where it says, Besides this, you know the time, the hour has come for you to wake up from your sleep. For salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. These are the last days, James and Paul would say. We can't afford to be selfish. There's too much to get done. James agrees with Jesus' teaching in Luke 12, 15 through 21. And Jesus said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was, had produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, 
What shall I do? For I now have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there will I store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. According to Jesus, the person who thinks the money he makes is mainly meant to increase his personal comforts is a fool. Wisely, wise and godly people with authentic faith know that all their money belongs to God and should be used to show that God, not money, is their treasure. How can we use our money to show that God is our real treasure? How can we use um, money to teach our children to be rich towards God? Don't you want that for yourself? Don't you want that for your children? That they'll be rich towards God? Luke 12, 21 says this, it's not by storing up treasures for yourselves. You don't do it by storing up as much as you can for your own use and pleasure. And in the same conversation, a few verses later, Jesus continued, this is also how you teach your children to be rich towards God and how you use your money to show that God is your real treasure. What do you do? You provide money bags that do not grow old. You provide yourselves money bags that don't wear out with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroy. That's how you do it. Now, there are some tricky turns here in this discussion, so you need to stay close to me. <clears throat> Isn't one of the ways that God blesses us by material gain? Isn't that true? That is true. The Bible says that's true. God increases our material goods so that by giving we can prove our material goods are not our God. I think it's safe to say that God doesn't prosper us so that we can move from the Ford to a Mercedes. He prospers us so that more unreached people can hear the gospel. <clears throat> and more unreached people can read the Bible in their own language. God, <clears throat> God prospers us so that we can double down on our giving to those who are in danger of starving, literally, and add extra giving to the needs of your local church. That's why God prospers us. Not so you can move up in your standard of living, this is a hard truth to teach. It's hard to understand. It's hard to, even harder to embrace. I understand that. And the reason is because it's countercultural to us. Worldly economics are not godly economics. Worldly economics say that if you've earned it, you deserve to spend it however you want. Some think that to make our self-indulgence right, all we need to do is be thankful for them. Be thankful for the blessings. So if I'm thankful for this this nice big boat I have, and so that makes it okay. Um, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be thankful. We should be thankful, but there's more to consider. More part, there's more in the conversation. Let me read uh, a couple quotes from John Piper. <clears throat> God is not glorified when we keep for ourselves, no matter how thankfully, what we ought to be use, using to alleviate the misery of unevangelized and uneducated and unhoused and unfed millions. The evidence that many people are not rich toward God is how little they give and how much they own. 
Piper continues, very few people have said to themselves, we will live at a level of joyful wartime simplicity and use the rest of what we earn to alleviate misery. But surely, this is what Jesus wants. I do not see how we can read the New Testament, then look at two billion unreached people and still build another barn for ourselves. We can only justify the exorbitance of our lifestyle by ignoring the lostness of the unreached and the misery of the poor. Penetrating words, aren't they? Paul said this in Ephesians 28 that brings light on the subject. Ephesians 4:28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Why? Not so he'll stop thieving, but this, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. That's why we are employed. <laughs> why, why does God so abundantly bless us in every way, including financial ways? so that we'll have enough to live on and then the rest to use for his glory and for the need of other people. That's why. Jesus, Paul, and James are not opposed to large incomes or nice things. Hear me on that, please. What they're opposed to is any income combined with selfishness. That's what those three important people are opposed to. Any, any income combined with selfishness. If you make a six-figure salary, it doesn't mean you have to live a six-figure lifestyle. Jim Elliott, you all have this memorized. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep. What can he not keep? Anything material to gain what he cannot lose. And what can he not lose? Christ, heaven, glory. Friends, we cannot keep our wealth. We are not as ignorant as the Egyptians, the ancient Egyptians who buried their dead with wealth to use in the next life. We cannot take one penny with us. We can invest our money for God's kingdom now and reap the eternal rewards when we get to heaven. Let's think a little more clearly about why we exist on this planet. Is it to make much of me or to make much of Christ and his gospel? Pray with me. Father, as difficult as these words are, I pray that your spirit uses them to penetrate our souls, that we will not be allowed by your spirit to have this important truth, these important truths, go in one ear and out the other. Father, spare us from luxurious, self-indulgent fatness, Help us to be a people who are concerned about the well-being, both physical and spiritual, of those all around us. Help us to be a church that reaches out and demonstrates our, our balance in this area. Help us not to be legalistic. Help us to find a, a place that glorifies you, a balance that brings honor to your name and joy to all of our circumstances. God, be glorified in us as a church and us as a people. I pray this in your name. Amen.